Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, from Portland, Oregon, where I just ran the marathon. Portland, home of the weird. And welcome, my friends and family, to episode 4-350 of the Run Run Live podcast. How about that? 350. Another week, another adventure, eh? Well, this week's adventure was flying to Portland to run the marathon. And it was a weird and wonderful place, and I did well. But you can hear all about that in the race report in this episode. Also in this episode, I sit down with Coach, and we talk about some marathon strategies on the futon in his running store in Woodstock, Oregon. Pace Setter Athletics. And that's probably enough for one episode. (laughs) And thank you all. For showing up every week and listening to my stories, I truly appreciate it. I live a charmed life. I ran into a couple of folks this week who were podcast listeners, and it's super weird for them (laughs) to hear my voice and see it coming out of me. I'm sure it's terribly disturbing and potentially disappointing, but I love getting out and having adventures and meeting people. I'm like Kwai Chang Kane from Kung Fu. Wandering the earth, speaking cryptic philosophy and kicking ass. When you can snatch the pebble from my hand, grasshopper. Google it, kids. You'll figure out what I'm talking about. I'll keep my comments brief because I'm juggling travel and work this week. And if you want the inside scoop on any of my adventures, you can always become a member. It's basically a subscription option to fund the podcast, and in exchange, I produce some members-only audio. And mostly I've been doing book reviews of the various books I've read, but you never know what's going to pop out of my fertile and active mind and into a member's audio episode. So look on the Run Run Live website for the member links. I spent the week in Woodstock, Oregon, and you have to remember, I'm from Boston. I grew up in the 70s, Irish Catholic. The Portland area is in some ways way outside my comfort zone, but in other ways strangely familiar. It's like being dropped into a friendly pot-growing commune circa 1972 
Everybody is super politically correct and friendly, but at the same time, super alternative lifestyle. This is a place where you have to be careful not to walk too close to the road when you're walking down the sidewalk because cars will spontaneously crash themselves stopping to let you cross. In Boston, driving is a contact sport and pedestrians are the prize. In Portland, it's like some sort of Baroque dance routine. There's a coffee shop on every corner, but not a Starbucks. No, no, no. The villagers picket Starbucks and drive them out of town as the evil corrupting corporation. And every store sells craft beer. The hardware store sells craft beer. The tanning salon sells craft beer. And if they're not selling craft beer, they're selling pot. And everyone wears a ski hat. And everyone has purple hair and piercings and tattoos and man buns and mohawks. But they're all super nice and homey. Every restaurant is a vegan restaurant. And there are homeless people everywhere. But it's hard to tell the homeless from the hipsters. There's an actual game in Portland called Homeless or Hipster where you try to guess. Everything is made by orphaned panda cubs using baby koala tears. And it rains almost every day. It's Portland. And as I sat writing this on the roof of a natural foods market that sells craft beer and vegan appetizers and has kombucha on tap in the bar, there is a woman, I think, with a goatee who has been discussing the nuances of an upcoming Wiccan ceremony for 40 minutes like she was talking about what kind of brownies to bring to the PTA meeting. I love it there. You can be as weird as you want, and everyone is friendly. And that's what I love about America, and that's why I go on adventures. On with the show. And now for today's featured interview. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you? Good. You just had a great marathon. We're sitting in your store. Yeah, I know. Slow day. Yeah, slow day. Slow day. So so we're going to record a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I had a great day yesterday. I get to thinking this time of year, everybody's running marathons, right? Busy time of year. Busy time of year. Yeah, busy so time I, of year. We could add some value by talking about marathon strategies. That's a good idea right? because just, a lot of people have just signed up for Boston and they'll be thinking about that training coming up as well. Right. So when training for a marathon or just approaching the marathon in general, what are the top three things that you see people doing wrong? Well, I think they don't make nutritional adjustments early enough in their training program. Okay. Say more about that. Well, I think people need to fuel the phases of their training. And I think now the big craze has been, and the way we're taking a lot of people, we talk about fat adaptation and burning more fat for fuel. And I think people don't understand that there's a phase of your training that that goes with. You actually should be periodizing your diet right along with your training. So you're fueling the levels of effort At the same time, you're producing those levels of effort, and that way you start to get more out of the training process early. So you get the adaptation in the training. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So how long should a a training cycle be, you think, for a marathon? For a mid-packer like me, how many weeks do you need? Well, I think with someone who's run as many marathons as you, I mean, I think still to optimize your training and run your best marathon, 20 weeks. Really? Yeah. I think we can eliminate that four-week preparation phase going into it because you already have. But I think a lot of times experienced athletes, 
like yourself, don't put as much emphasis on going back to the beginning of a training cycle and redoing the endurance phases of it, <laughs> which I think is very, very important in, in every training cycle. So three weeks is it the optimal no. training cycle? <laughs> three no. weeks, three weeks generally isn't the optimal training cycle. No. no. So that was uh, one of the top three things you see the athletes doing wrong. What's another one? Too much, too soon. I think too many people start to train too hard, too soon for the race, and they don't go through a whole muscular adaptation phase, and they experience a lot of injuries, and they start to get diminishing returns because they have tired legs too early in their training program. Right, and that prevents you from hitting the hard workouts when you need to well, right? Right. right. Again, yeah. you, you go through a cycle and a periodization cycle, and it's a whole cyclical phase of, of muscular adaptation and preparing the body for the next level of stress as you go along. I always kind of sat around 12 to 14 weeks on a cycle. I just assume I already have the base, and I just do the hard work. So assume the build is already there. I think a lot of people have that conception, but you can always increase that base. Right. The base can always get bigger. The bottom line is the VO2 max can't get bigger. The base can always get bigger. And I think when you get back to that, and we, you know, we can go back and use Kenyans and East Africans as an example. And you always see they go back to that 24 week cycle and they start with these astronomical bases that they build. So nutrition, too much too soon. What else? And I think not enough people have the focus to look at just the big picture, they need to create a plan where they have short-term goals, measurable goals, attainable goals very early in the cycle so they can start to see progress and success and stay focused along the way. Yeah, so they don't get depressed and bail out. Right. And that's the advantage of having a coach to begin with is people coach themselves, they tend to bail out of the plans early. They don't stick with them. Well, and I think that comes from the second problem where they do too much too soon and they that burns them out as well. Right. So... What if you get an athlete who wants to get faster? What are the top three things? You know, you get somebody who comes in and say, I want to get faster. You know, I don't think I ever get an athlete who comes in and says, I want to get slower. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when someone comes in and they want to get faster, and, and I like to take the, the holistic approach with them. And let's go back to the base. Let's do some muscular strength stuff. Let's work on flexibility. Uh, dial in the nutrition, and let's go through the phases of training, and we'll we'll get to that intensity, and we'll get to that speed work down the road. And staying healthy will get you faster. And also a lot of mechanics. Yeah, a lot of mechanics. Mechanics and form. And that's one thing that you always come back to when you're out, like yesterday, out in the course, looking at people's form. You can tell which ones are doing it right, especially late in the race. I think you know, our running society as a whole got away from good running form 40 years ago. And, you know, now we're very focused on getting back because we know that better form can reduce the chance of injuries, produce better results. And especially guys like you and I who have run with good form our entire lives because it's all we knew. We didn't know heel strike. And we really watch people run. And, and I think sometimes I know you and I have run marathons together where we're running past people saying, oh, get off your heels. Yeah. <laughs> coaching people as we go. Yeah. I was coaching some poor, poor guy yesterday who was at the 11 mile mark of that half marathon. Yeah. And he was just dying. I could tell he was zone six. Yeah. It's just dying. I'm like, relax, breathe, relax, breathe. Fighting it ain't going to help. I know. And then I'm with the pacers, right? And we're going down a hill. And the guy goes, don't fight the hill. And I'm like, put your elbows back, hips forward. Yeah. And the guy goes, what he said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the elbow back, chest forward, and let the feet roll. Yeah. yeah. So you're getting close to your goal race now, right? right? You're fit. What do you do a week out from a marathon? 
And that's a great question because we talk about how to taper. I think the most important thing that people need to understand about that taper period is what taper really is. Taper is about your body rebuilding and recovering. It's not about getting in a last-ditch workout. It's no, there's nothing you can really do at that point that's going to increase your chances of running a better, faster marathon other than letting those muscles knit and letting them repair and letting them get stronger. And that should be the focus during the taper period is, you know, as much rest and recovery as you possibly can, you know, while you're still doing some some work to enact all the fast twitch, slow twitch fibers so you're burning the, the gunk out of your legs. But I really emphasize the rest and recovery during taper period so we get that proper rebuilding and people go into the race with fresh, strong legs. Yeah, but you don't want to get sluggish. So no. you don't want to just sit around. No. And you don't want to overeat. You got to balance all that with because you're under stress, so your yeah you want to balance. Tendency is to overeat. Well, yeah, and you get and a lot of people they get in the taper and they say, "Oh my God, I'm gaining weight," and I say, "Well, that's because you're taking in the same amount of calories you were taking in during this intensity period prior to taper." You really have to again manage nutrition well so that you're fueling taper just like you're fueling base building, where you're getting a little bit less calorie intake, so you're not putting on that extra weight. Right. That's what I tell people is I say you should have a nutrition plan for your taper. Like right. actually meal plan your taper because you don't want to be sitting around stressed out with the bag of cookies in reach. Yeah, that's great advice. So sort of try to get ahead of that. All right, so we're getting close to marathon now or the day before the marathon. What am I going to do? Everyone has a different plan. You and I, I think, talked about this the other day. I sleep like a rock the day before a race. Yeah. I don't sleep in my normal life at all. But day before a race, I sleep like a rock because at that point, I know there isn't anything else that I can do. You know, you want to get rest. You don't want to spend a lot of time on your feet. You certainly don't want to start taking in into your system any kind of nutrition that you haven't had before during your regular training. No changes at that point. Get home, relax, find a way to get your mind out of things. I like just to have people say, okay, what's my contingency plan for the next day? We just ran into horrendous conditions that changed every 24 hours here. If you have a contingency plan in place that you can really just make that adjustment to. Okay, I came to this race because it's generally hot here. Oops, it got cold. Well, do I have a backup plan that I can go to very, very easily um, because it got cold and then I'm comfortable and there's no mental strain because I'm ready for it. So that night before should be about mental preparation, making sure that you have everything you need laid out, ready to go so the next day is just as stressless as possible. Yeah, and I think a lot of what I see in less experienced runners is the ability to freak out when something changes. Yeah. Like the weather changes or their favorite socks got left in the bag or, yeah. you know, it's like none of that stuff matters. If you've trained well, you can run in a different pair of shoes and a different pair of shorts and a yeah. different shirt and yeah. not have your special treats. Yeah. I say this a thousand times and I, especially because I, I own a running shoe store. I tell people all the time, shoes don't make you faster. Socks don't make you faster. Training makes you faster. And if you've had a great training cycle, that's all you ever really need to rely on. Yep, that is true. But I see people freaking out on course. Oh. So the morning of the marathon, what do we do in the morning of the marathon? Don't forget your bib in the house? <laughs> don't don't forget your bib in the house. That's always a key thing. Make sure you have your bibs when you get down there. You don't have any issues at the starting line. And again, you know, you want to get up race morning. And, and I tell people to try to treat race morning like they treat their long run morning. Because it's basically what you're doing. You're going out for that long run again. And what did you eat and how did you eat it on the morning of your long runs that was successful? Again, we go back to training cycle and fueling your training cycle. 
what did you learn on your long runs and how to fuel those long runs? And that's what your morning should be. It should be identical to what those long runs were. So, again, your system doesn't have any shocks going to the starting line. Yeah, and I tend to try to err on the lighter side yeah. with, with the, the nutrition. If your pre-long run meal is a big bowl of oatmeal, we'll have a half or a third of a bowl of oatmeal, yeah. right? Or yeah. a banana. Keep it light because you don't want to be fighting that on course. Yeah. Nobody likes to have to run into the woods in the middle of a marathon when you're trying to no. run a time. All right, so now we're we're in the marathon. We're there. Right. Right? We're in the race. So you get out and you're running. How do you know? What's the strategy in the marathon? What's your strategy? How do you get your best time? Do you go out as fast as you can, then try to hold on? Do you try to do the negative split? What do you do? I've always been a fan of the negative split or the steady pace marathon. And again, we go to who the athlete is and how the training cycle went. But I think the focus has to be is to break the race down into shorter races. Too many people, again, they'll go into marathon and say, I'm going to run the first half in this and then the second half in that. And I really think it has to be more of a 5K, 5-mile approach because that allows you to make adjustments at smaller levels. So if you get to a 5K and you realize that you're a minute faster than you wanted to be, okay, I'm exerting too much energy, I have another 5K to back that minute down and relax a little bit. Rather than getting to mile 13 and saying, oh, my God, I'm six minutes ahead of my schedule and no, you're not going to have anything left. And at that point, you can't change anything. So you're running a bunch of shorter races and just hitting marks along the way. I have a couple of comments on that. The first one is that what I found myself doing yesterday was having to remind myself to run now, right? Focus on what you're doing right now and stop worrying about what's going to happen in 10 miles or 20 miles. Yeah. Run well and clean now. And that run the tangents, have good form, and the rest will sort itself out when you get there, right? Right. So, again, chunking it up into pieces all the way to saying right now is really the only important time in this race and getting that out of your head. Because I think the mental part of it is what makes marathon so challenging for people, right? I think not enough people do the mental reinforcements enough as the race is going on. I feel good. Legs feel good. Feet feel good. Everything feels good. Nutrition feels good. And I tell this to folks all the time. Angelo, he used to say he would never say to a fighter, the other fighter looks tired or you're getting to him. Because all those negative thoughts turn into a negative product after listening to him over and over again. Tired turns into your athlete gets tired. So keep reinforcing yourself by telling yourself you feel good. I feel good now. My legs feel good. My knees feel good. Whatever it is, that, that focus should always be on feel good. Amaka always had a great saying, when it hurts, smile. Yeah, I do that now too, especially as I'm getting older. I'll be late in a race and I'll be hurting and I'll go, wait a second, this is a gift. You know how lucky you are to be here doing this right now? And I'll just smile and then all the stress goes away. Exactly. The other side of that spectrum is now you get the Garmin that can give you immediate pace feedback and immediate effort feedback. And I tried to do that at Boston and it screwed me up because I spent all my time trying to dial in the pace to within one second. You can't do it. The watch just isn't that good. No. You shouldn't try to do it in 10-foot segments. you got to do it in miles or bigger segments yeah. for your pacing. Again, the 5K, 5-mile five you know, race strategy. Let's get to here, get to there. Just, just hit a mark. Because when you get there, again, you can look down at your watch and say, wow, okay, I'm way ahead or I'm right on where I needed to be at this mark. And I pacing a girl yesterday, and that's what I did. I just sat up a pace that I felt comfortable with, that I knew – was going to hit those 5K marks we wanted to hit, and we just started to hit them. So how do you know you're running the right pace when you're out there? What's that feel like? Because you're racing, right? It's supposed to be a little bit hard. 
Right. But how do you know what the right pace is? I mean, after enough training and enough racing, you kind of get a feel for it, but... Yeah, and then there's a magic word, the feel for it. Yeah. You're listening to your body, and you and I have talked, had this conversation numerous times and on your show a few times. We know at five miles if it's our day or not. Yeah. And that's one thing that's that's hard to learn, but it's one thing if you're in touch with your body, you can learn. If everything's firing right and you're feeling good, your heart rate isn't too elevated, you're hitting your marks and the effort feels easy, listen to what your body's saying. If you're hitting those marks all the time and the effort feels easy, then you're on your day. If you're hitting those marks and it feels like a lot of work, it's not going to be your day. And you should say, okay, what's plan B? Plan B is the attainable goal. Plan C is the finish goal. Right. So that's what I always try to do is I always try to have at least three goals. Right. And the overriding goal is always just don't die. Don't die. Don't die. Have fun. But within that, you want to have a pretty big spread of goals. Yeah. Right. So that here's my A++ goal. Because sometimes you show up. And you get the marathon miracle. I've had it happen to me before. And you just run, you have this out-of-body experience and you run the race of your lifetime. Yeah. That doesn't happen a lot, but sometimes it does. But sometimes it does. And and you're right. Yeah. So we have that, we have that three-tier system where, you know, there's that outer reach goal. And that's the day that you get to 15 miles and you feel like you've never felt before. And you say, you know, and I'm going to put the hammer down. And there's that huge PR that comes through. And then there's your attainable goal. You know, the goal you went out to set and the goal you would like to reach. And then there's that, okay, well, I'm just going to get it done goal. And, you know, I'm here, I'm going to get it done, and I'm not going to have the day I wanted to have, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, anytime you finish a marathon, it's okay. There's never any disgrace in not having the race you wanted to have when you run 26.2. So what do you do when you get late in a race? Because you can have those hard patches where you go, it's not your day, but you got to hang with it long enough to make sure it's not just a blip. Right, because you can cycle in and out of feeling good and feeling bad. Because yeah. I've had those things where I've felt bad for 10, 5 miles, but then snapped out of it late in the race to have a great race. Well, that's a tough mindset for novice runners to make that adjustment. Because for novice runners, a lot of times when it starts to go bad, it continues to go bad. And that's that really is a mental thing. For a guy with 54 marathons under your belt like you do, or an old-timer like me... We can say, you know, I've had bad training experience or racing experiences like this, and I know that sometimes they turn good. So let's just see what happens over the next couple of miles. I'm just going to keep working this and see what happens. And then you get that turnaround. You go, yeah, I know I can do this. And again, that's, it's mental. You know, there's so many mental games that go on in the marathon. And it takes years of experience to understand them all and what to do with them all. But the biggest thing is always checking back in. Check back in when something's going wrong. Check back in and say, no, you know what? I feel good. I'm going to, this is good. I'm going to yeah. work through it. Another learning experience. What am I learning out of this? These are all positive reinforcement statements you can make that'll keep you going forward. It's almost like a, a status check or a health check because I'll find sometimes where I'll, I'll realize I'm struggling and I'll look around and go, well, because you're running up a hill. That's why you're struggling. Yeah. <laughs> or you missed an, it's been seven miles since you've eaten anything. Yeah. Right. If you do the little status check and then say, okay, what's going on here? You can sometimes you can remedy it. What do you recommend for people doing nutrition on a course? We have our products that, that we like. How do you get that? How often? How much? You try to, and again, we go right back into the training cycle. What did you learn about your nutritional needs along the training cycle? How many calories an hour did you need and what kind of calories work best for you? Again, it, it, it could be very, very individual. We have people who are going to run on 90 calories an hour. We have people who run on 125 calories an hour. I think once you start getting over that 125 in a marathon, that's a lot of calories. So I think you should try to figure out a way that's what you're man- managing. And again, you know, if you're using gels or using glucose or some kind of carbohydrate solution that's getting into the blood system fast, 
you're going to find out that most are going to give you 30 to 40 minutes. And so every 30 to 40 minutes is when you're going to want to be taking that next bit of nutrition in or that next bit of energy in. Yeah, I try to break it up into hour chunks, but I also preload. Would you recommend people preload? Again, depends. I don't like to start out with a lot of calories in me. I'll drink I'll drink one serving of Genucan prior to the start of the race, which is about 110 calories, and that will carry me for about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes before right. I need anything. Some people like to go in calorie heavy. I'm one of those, a cup of coffee for breakfast, get to the race, drink my Genucan, and I go. I preload uh, 90 minutes to an hour ahead, I'll preload a Genucan, right? Yeah. And the other thing is you don't want to pound the water. I see people, a lot of big rookie mistake is pounding water because that'll flush the electrolytes out of your system. Yeah, it does two things, actually. It flushes electrolytes out of your system, and that sloshy too much feeling that you have in your stomach is because you don't have the electrolytes to pull the water into your system, so your gut gets sloshy and heavy. Yeah. The other thing I noticed is that you can have a plan, but you have to adjust it based on race conditions. Right. Right, so if it's a super hot day, that's going to be different. If it's a super cold day like we got yesterday, I'm going to burn way less fuel. Well, and here's the contrary to that. Actually, your body needs just as many calories when it's cold as when as when it's hot because keeping your body warm is more stress on your organs and your heart than, than cooling your body down. Um, I see people made, and made this mistake, and I'll use Lake Tahoe, the first Ironman in Lake Tahoe years ago, a couple of years back. So many people DNF'd because they didn't take in enough nutrition. They thought, okay, it's really cold. I don't need to take this in. And you need to take in that nutrition, even when it's cold, to keep the body fuel, to keep the core from getting cold, because it's in there working to produce warmth for your entire body. So you need calories to do that. Right. I agree with that. I guess I'll adjust it. I'll say you need less fluid when you, it's cold. Yeah, you need less and fluid. if your nutrition right. is mixed with your fluids, yeah. then you're going to take less of that. So yeah. I'm carrying a bottle of Yukan. I'm going to only take half of that but I'm still going to hit the water or I'm going to hit something else. Yeah. Right? So there's a band around that. You don't have to get every single gel in. It's not going to ruin your race. Right. Right. So I had four with me yesterday, and I ended up dropping one. So I had three. What about um, electric? That must have been yours we saw on the course. We were Probably. Somebody it was said, it hey, an someone, orange one? Yeah. Someone said, yeah. hey, someone dropped a glucose pack. And we went, oh, it must have been one of our folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was very entertaining. Yeah. What about uh, electrolytes? The magic electrolytes we always hear so much about. Plants love electrolytes. Yeah, plants. You know, I think, again, you have to, again, this is learned over the course of the training cycle. What's my sweat rate? How much am I losing? What do I need to take in? Um, I think there's a couple of really, really good products out on the market right now. Um, you know, Genucan makes a great hydrator that gets into the system fast and doesn't stay in your gut. Base salts, I really like base salts because... They go right in from your mouth. You put them on your tongue, and they immediately absorb in your system so they don't get into your gut, so you don't have any of that holding the fluids in the gut that over, if you get too many electrolytes, will happen. And Duralites have always been a standard go-to product um, in the industry. If you're getting enough of the Enduralite capsules, you're good too. But you really want to have the balance. You know, it's it's not just about sodium. You need the potassium in there as well. So you need electrolytes that have the balance of all the minerals that you need. All right, so you've been doing this for a long time. What's your, as we move to the exit here, what's your advice to athletes now? They're either looking to run their races in the next three weeks or gear up for Boston. What can they think about? I think the good thing to do now is, especially if you're gearing up Boston, it's taking a little bit of downtime. You probably just came out of a long racing season. 
Take some downtime. Let your legs recover. Let all the work you've done heal and repair. Let the muscles repair. Then get into a strength and conditioning program. You know, two to three days of strength work, core work, a lot of flexibility, and start building your base again. Go back to those basics. But I think it's really, really important that you have that downtime so your body can completely repair. And I think a lot of athletes make that mistake that they don't take the downtime between big training cycles. So take a couple of weeks, lose a little bit of fitness. Losing fitness actually brings fitness back better. So lose a little bit of fitness for a couple of weeks as the body repairs. You enjoy the holidays with your family before you gear up for that next big training cycle. If you're three weeks out from your race now, a couple of big races still coming up. We have New York in a couple of weeks. We have Philadelphia coming up. California Internationals is in December. So there's a few big races still coming up before the end of the year. Make sure you have the nutrition dialed in. You know, Make sure you have all your plans laid out and what you're going to do. Get some of that, a lot of that race specificity stuff done so you're ready to go on race day. Yep. And I think when you say let yourself recover fully, that means all the tendonitis should go away. <laughs> you would hope. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah you know, we want to go into a, a new training cycle as healthy as possible. And, you know, this is what makes elite athletes elite athletes is that downtime between races. Heather Jackson, who just came in third at Ironman this past weekend, and she ran a 307 marathon off the bike. It was a great day for her. I was at Placid in July when she won Lake Placid, and I was talking to her and her husband, and the thing they said, well, you know, we're going to go camping for a week. We're going to take our time. We're going to go camping. We're going to get away from all this stuff. We're not going to do any workouts. Then we're going to go down to Portland on vacation for a week, visit some family in California, and after about two and a half weeks, we'll go down to Tucson, and then we'll start prepping again for Hawaii. And what she was doing was losing some fitness so that her body was repairing all the aches and pains and the strains were going away so she could rebuild to go into that race. And I think as age groupers, we don't do enough of that. We worry too much about losing fitness. We get crazy over that, that phrase, losing fitness. Yeah, we certainly had an interesting day yesterday. It was a good day. Good yeah. day for me. You know. It's a great, great day for you. You had a, you had a great race. And it's funny, um, you had a great race and two of our other teammates had really great races. Everyone got through what was a really, really miserable day. And, but uh, that's the other thing is the race conditions are athlete specific. So when I hear cold and rainy, I'm like, great. Yeah. And for me, cold and rain, my core got so cold that I couldn't go on. I'm not a cold weather, rainy weather runner, and, and I got cold to the core, and I was done. But everyone else maintained, and even our buddy from Canada who went six hours. And, six hours, no training. Six hours, six hours and 30 minutes, actually, and no training in horrendous conditions. Hats off to Brent. That yeah. was amazing and inspiring. Yeah, in a new pair of shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Portland Marathon. Weird and wonderful in the rain. When I daydream about marathons, it's always somewhere on the course in the high miles. It's when you have that moment of truth where it hurts and you want to stop. Your body and your brain, they want you to stop. And you have to make a decision. You have to decide. You have to decide not only to keep going, but to push. And knowing that every mile, every step, and every footfall is going to hurt just as much and probably more for the rest of the race. And in my fantasies, I make that decision. I flip that mental switch and revel in the glorious effect of closing that race, of beating the chorus, of beating my demons, and celebrating that sweet, sweet victory. 
And I had that moment in Portland at mile 24. I was hurting, but my form was good and my legs were still turning. I saw the mile mark out of the corner of my eye. I shook the smoke of effort from my fogged head and chanced to look at my watch. In quick round numbers, I had 20 minutes to get to the finish line to break three hours and 40 minutes and qualify for Boston in 2018. At first, I thought, oh, that's easy. I've got it. All I need is two 10-minute miles. Then I remembered that pesky quarter mile that no one likes to talk about. That's another two minutes. And I knew there could be no relaxing, no slowing down, no letting off the gas. And I pushed my hips forward and I ran scared. Like my whole life was chasing me, like everything I have ever thought or said or believed was here, now, in this moment. And that's why I love the marathon. That's why I keep coming back for that once in a while chance to look at my fear and run over it. To leave those size 12D footprints on the face of mortality. I had not trained specifically for this race. I had not trained specifically for any road marathons at all since Boston in April. I had been running, racing, and staying in general shape, but I have not been focused on the marathon. I was focused on having fun in trail races all summer. I rolled out of a disastrous crash at Boston in April where I hit the wall so hard you probably heard it around the world. I recycled that fitness to run the Grand Canyon with Teresa in May. I struggled through an ugly training cycle in June and July that culminated in a slow, hot Indianapolis trail marathon at the end of July. I felt terrible. My runs were sluggish. My heart rate was high. Nothing was working. So August 1st, I decided to change. I did something different. I re-engineered my nutrition. I quit drinking beer. I went mostly vegan. I ate probiotic. And I started to feel better. My weight started to drop. And my runs started to feel good. I ran the Wapak Trail Race at the end of August and had a decent time of it. It took me four hours to cross those four mountains of out-and-back technical trails. I kept the nutrition plan going. I dropped down under 170 pounds for the first time in 30 years. I felt lean and strong, and my heart rate started performing like it used to in workouts. With the lighter, healthier body and the cooler weather, I started hitting my workouts and looking forward to the hard ones. I turned around and ran a six-and-a-half-hour Spartan Beast up and down in Killington and was quite happy with it. But now I, I was in a strange position. I had signed up for Portland with no intention of racing it or training for it specifically, but here it was three weeks away, and I was light and healthy. I had enough time to get in one long run and a couple decent tempo workouts before the taper. I ran that three-hour training run in just about a 350 marathon pace. Now I was really in a pickle as to Portland. Could that marathon miracle happen? Before the weight loss, I felt like I was in eh, four-hour marathon shape. And after that training run, I thought, maybe I could be in 345 shape. Maybe 340, maybe 330. I age up for the 2018 Boston Marathon if they don't change the standards, and that means a sub-340 is now a qualifying time for me. Could I do that? How? would I do that? What would my strategy be? 
I had the time on my feet, I was healthy and fit, but I had hardly any road volume and very little quality speed or tempo. So to summarize, fitness, check, race-specific training, negative. A conundrum. This was a travel race for me. I had to get from Boston out to Portland, which anyone with a little geography knows is all the way across the country. And I'm running low on frequent flyer miles, so I decided to fly out early on Wednesday and come back Tuesday night on the red eye. It's an eight-hour flight for me. Travel races, of course, have some challenges. You never quite know what to bring, and you have to deal with jet lag and live off the land, so to speak. But I'm a good traveler. I put this race on the calendar early in the year because Coach, who has the prostate cancer, said it was his last marathon. And after all he's done, training me, I needed to support him on this. So my plan was to hang out and work in coffee shops during the day. By taking the cheap flights, I needed to find a place to stay for a whole week. And I executed my first Airbnb transaction. So if you're going to have an adventure, why not go all the way, right? I'm a flexible traveler. I found a room with a friendly pit bull and a futon three blocks from Coach's store. And it was weird but nice, and I had a warm dog to cuddle with, which is always a plus. I established my routine of getting up early for East Coast calls, hitting the coffee shop for a few hours of work, then the organic market for an early lunch. The vegan and whole food choices in Woodstock are awesome. Wander over to the Starbucks and Safeway for a few more hours of Wi-Fi, then close the day by hanging out at Coach's store, Pace Setter Athletics. Just another hipster, or more accurately, another homeless guy wandering around Portland. Now the race was approaching, and teammates were flooding in. What should my strategy be? I knew one thing for sure. I did not want to race 20 miles of the race and then death shuffle the last 10K again. I needed a less aggressive strategy. I needed a negative split strategy, but one that gave me a chance to race if I felt good. I needed a strategy to let the race come to me and see what happened. And looking at the course profile, it seemed a good fit for me. It was slight uphill out with a big hill at 16.5, cresting on top of a bridge over the river at 17 miles, and then mostly downhill to the finish. That bridge was a good milestone. It seemed like at the top of that bridge at 17 miles, I'd know whether it was my day or not. And if I could hold off from going out too fast until that point, then I could choose to close it on the downhills and see what I had. The most I've ever negative splitted a race is around 7 minutes in 2009 at Boston. And that was accelerating in from 17 miles as well. But I wasn't in that kind of shape, and I hadn't done that kind of training. So I set my A++++ wet dream goal to be a 3.30, and my A goal to be a 3.40, and my B goal for 3.45, and my overall goal, as always, not to die. My day would have to go very poorly not to be able to deliver at least a four-hour marathon. The key would be what I could go out at and still have that gas to accelerate into the finish and not come up short. It was a tricky bit of game theory. As race day approached, the weather changed radically. What had been predicted as a nice sunny fall day, a break in the rain, changed to partly cloudy, 
then to slight drizzle, then to heavy rain and 50 degrees over the course of the 48 hours leading up to the race. And frankly, I found this oddly comforting. I like the rawness of inclement weather in a race. I find it focuses me on the challenge at hand and clears the mind. So I went to bed early with a good plan and slept like a log. The race had an early start time, 7 a.m., which I also like. I woke up before my 4.30 a.m. alarm to the sound of torrential rain and water sluicing off the roof of my B&B. I had a banana and sipped a cup of coffee that I had procured the night before. I kitted up and rubbed some Flexol on my legs. I put on those same old Hoka Cliftons I've been racing in all summer with a pair of ASICS New York City Marathon Tech Socks. And because of the cold weather, I decided to wear my Zenza calf sleeves, still a little bloodstained from the Spartan race. I had my well-worn Brooks baggy shorts with the bike short liner to prevent chafing. And I wore a PRS Fit Team Tech shirt for coach and my prostate cancer race cap. So remember to get yourselves checked or force your man to get himself checked. And a pair of running gloves to keep my hands warm in the cold rain. I stashed eight Enduralites in a small baggie in the key pocket. I carried four glucose energy gels, which is a, a new thing that I'm trying, one in each side pocket and one in the back of each glove. And these are oversized gels, more fluid than gel, and they're fairly bulky, but I needed to bring my own fuel. The on-course support was this disgusting zero-calorie Ultima drink, and bargain bin bulk gummy bears. I know, bizarre and useless marathon racing provisions. I carried my bike bottle of regular strength you can in one hand to sip, and I mixed up another bottle of you can and drank it in the corral, waiting for the race to start. Coach and a bunch of Team PRS Fit athletes picked me up around 5 a.m., and we drove downtown for the race. As we waited in the corral, it was a steady, cold, drizzly rain. I had a trash bag as a raincoat. I was in Corral D. I seated myself towards the center of the corral, as I usually do, but realizing that I was in far better shape than the people in the corral, I moved up to the front to get better running lanes. I guess the D corral was four hours and slower. I must have given a four-hour estimated finish time when I registered. The four-hour pace group was right at the front of the corral with me. They played the national anthem and encouraged us to sing along, and I choked up a bit, as I usually do, being a bit overwhelmed by the emotion of standing yet again fit and ready at the start of another adventure in the drizzling dawn. Sean Astin, the Hobbit actor, said a few words of encouragement, and they started releasing the corrals. Out of the chute, I was running free. I was wearing two watches, my Garmin with no heart rate strap, and my old Iron Man, because I wasn't sure the Garmin battery would last, and I trusted the old Iron Man Timex to survive anything Portland could throw at it. I configured my Garmin to show just distance and time. I wasn't going to try and watch my pace neurotically like I did at Boston. I'd just run by feel and try to hold back enough to be able to race at the end. And I quickly left my starting tranche and caught the back of the next wave. I was weaving through the dark, wet city streets trying to find some open running room. I knew I was exerting a little bit too much effort, but I'd like to burn off a little energy in the first mile or so to warm up. 
I quickly cut and passed the 355 pace group. I missed the first mile mark, but I saw mile two and checked my Garmin. I was a bit shocked when it was 24 minutes, because I felt I was running a lot faster than that. And it turns out somewhere on the course, they made us run an extra half mile in that first mile. So I didn't find out about that until a couple days after the race. I ran an extra 800 meters. Another little shock was that my Garmin had decided not to connect to the satellite, so all I had was time, no distance, no pace, no elevation, nada, which was frankly perfectly okay with me. No distractions, and I could focus on racing. I kept on passing people and finally caught up to the 345 pace group. And I pulled into the 345 pace group and introduced myself to the pacer, Frank. Now, Frank was a veteran runner with over 150 marathons and 24 Bostons, so I had found a home. I calculated that this 345 pace group had at least a two-minute head start on my corral, and 3.45 was a good pace for me to hang at until the bridge, and then I'd be within two or three minutes of my A goal if things worked out and I could decide what to do. As we ran the middle miles, all the mile marks were off by half a mile, and I'm not sure why in a 45-year-old race the mile marks would be so far off, but it turns out we took a wrong turn someplace in the first mile. People were concerned, but I said, mostly for my own benefit, the only mile mark that matters is the last one. As we cruised the early miles, there were lots of bands and drummers on the course. They were a bit muted and driven dismal by the driving rain. We had the road mostly to ourselves. The road was closed, or at least half closed, and the course was wide enough to avoid the puddles. It was mostly tar, with several out and backs before we headed out up the river towards the bridge. And there were some rough bits in the city, but all in all, the course was a decent surface for racing. I spent the middle miles locked in with the 345 pace group, helping Frank and the other pacer coach the runners. I felt pretty good at that pace and was working to hold back. Uh, my UCAM bottle lasted a lot longer than I thought it would, well into the half. And I took a couple Enduralites every 10K or so, and I got a glucose down every 10k or so as well. I lost one on the road somewhere, but I had enough fuel and it didn't it didn't worry me. There were plenty of water stops and I was taking a cup of water when it was convenient. I had a funny incident at one of the middle mile aid stations. I went cruising in yelling water and somebody handed me a cup and I took a gulp and I spat it out. It was that disgusting Ultima stuff. And I look for another cup yelling water and someone hands me another cup and it's gummy bears. And I say, effing gummy bears, and throw it up in the air in frustration. And all the runners around me were cracking up and repeating, effing gummy bears. So that was funny. When we passed through the half and into about 14 miles, we turned into a headwind. So cold and rainy with a headwind. And it got pretty chilly. I was glad for my gloves. We pulled the pace group together into a drafting peloton. And I was feeling pretty strong, and a big guy went by, so I pulled out and pulled into his envelope and drafted through to the base of the hill at 16-ish miles, uh, that hill that leads up to the bridge. It's basically an on-ramp, about 250 feet of elevation gain. And I hit the hill, and everyone was walking or stumbling, so I pushed using my mountain training, and I attacked it and ground up at passing a lot of people. 
and I crested the bridge and I used the momentum to slingshot and just keep passing. And so ironically, the guy who, who won the race finished while I was on the bridge at 17 and a half miles. But I felt strong. My form was good. My energy was good. And now it was time to race. And on the other side of the bridge, coming back down the river, there were lots of shallow downhills. And I was racing and I was pushing and I was working hard. I was running scared and I was hunting the next pace group. Would it be 340, 335? I wondered if I could hold the pace and push through the end. I knew I was close to my A goal with the 345 pace group behind me and that two-minute buffer. So I shot my last gel at mile 20. My head was clear. I was tiring, but my form was good. I didn't have any cramps. Some little hills around 22 to 23 miles, and it started to suck a little bit. Not enough to knock me out, but enough to tell me my mechanics were tenuous. And the question was, when would that other shoe drop? Did I have... 26.2 miles or 22 or 24. Doing the math, I knew I wasn't going to catch that 330, but I also knew I was right on the 340 and had to keep pushing. And I stopped thinking about the finish and tried to run in the now. I focused on form. Hips, hips, hips. I worked the tangents, used the road, stretch it out, use the downhills to pick up seconds and feet. I was locked in and racing. I was running scared. And my mantra was hips, tangents. And I passed the mile 24 mark and saw how close I was. And I flipped that switch. And things started to blur a bit. Hips, tangents, effort, people walking, passing people, limping from calf cramps, knocking them out of the way to get to the tangents, taking water at the water stops, pushing, pushing, hips, tangents, push. By the last mile, I was emitting a little moaning sigh with each breath as my systems were starting to fail and my form was getting jerky. And checking my watch, I had about yeah, a quarter mile to go and it was getting too close to call. I never saw mile 26, passing walkers, half marathoners, two hard 90-degree turns with less than 200 meters to go, push, push, hips, drive the arms and the knees, hammer the puddles, work the tangent, through the chute, cross both mats, double over in exhaustion. I stopped my Garmin at 338.51. Even with any difference in the timing system, that should get me under 340. And it started to dawn on me that I had most probably just qualified for Boston for the first time in five years. Five years of injuries, bombs, and training, and heart problems, and racing. I persevered. I figured it out and made it work. I did the work. I found myself. As I got my medal and stumbled through the finish chute, the marathon photo guy stepped in front of me. I spread my arms and leaned back and smiled at the sky in glorious joy like the Jesus on the mountain in Rio de Janeiro. That picture, that moment, is now another treasure in my great, grateful well of treasures that can't be taken away. And they gave me one of those throwaway post-race hoodie things, and it was still pissing cold rain, and I was soaked. And I was a bit stunned now, looking around for someone to celebrate with. I grabbed some apples. They have great apples in Portland this time of year. They gave us memorial coins and our finisher shirt, and I tried to tuck these under the hoodie to keep them dry to no avail. And then someone handed me a tree sapling because, you know, Portland. And having stopped racing, I was now soaking wet 
freezing cold with numb prune hands. And I spent some time asking people how to get back to the hotel where some teammates had rooms so I could get in a hot shower and get some feeling back in my body. And I was surprised to have very little chafing, not too much damage at all in general. I thought for sure with the rain I'd lose more skin. I wasn't that sore from the effort either. I think when you keep your form, you don't get beat up as badly. And then we had a good night celebrating with the team, having some local IPAs and a nice big cheeseburger. At the end of the day, this race went my way. I got as much out of myself as I was able, given my training and the conditions. I walk into every race expecting to achieve my A goal. I don't assume it. I don't assume I deserve it. I do the training. I'm patient. And I try to give myself the best chance to succeed on any given day. Your race doesn't happen on the course. It happens in your training and your consistency and in your attitude. You earn the right to have a special day like I had in Portland this week. And sometimes it's hard. You have to keep showing up. You have to be willing to take a beating. You have to be willing to get knocked down over and over again and keep showing up. It took me five years and it wasn't always pretty. I had plenty of self-doubt and detours. And I had to age into it, but I'm qualified for the 2018 Boston Marathon. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have pushed your hips forward through the end of episode 350 or 4-350 of the Run Run Live podcast. That was fun, right? I'm definitely on a high cycle right now. I find myself at the end of my to-do list with no races on the calendar. Well, of course, I always have races on the calendar, but I'm going to heed coach's advice and lose a little fitness now. See? I decided not to double down, run another marathon this fall. See? I'm coachable. <laughs> I have my yearly water stop volunteer duty at the Bay State Marathon, coupled with the Groton Town Forest Trail Race next weekend. At some point in November, I will run a turkey trot, I'm sure. And then in December, it's the Mill Cities Relay. And of course, on New Year's Eve day, we have the newly official Groton Marathon. You can go check out the website. And on New Year's Day itself, the Hangover Classic, so that should keep me busy. How about you all? What are you racing and training for? What's your next adventure? What are you going to do? You're not getting any younger. Now's a good time as ever. Find something that scares you as much as it inspires you and turn that weird thing into an adventure. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him Right. And bargain bin gummy beer bears. <clears throat> and bargain bin gummy beers. Wow, I can't say it. And bargain bin gummy beer. <laughs> and bargain bin gummy beers. I, I can't say beers. Bears. Buna so how about Penitani? Buna Penitani. Please report to gate B2, B, Bravo 2, for the immediate boarding and departure of your flight. Luna Penitani. It's a pretty name, Luna Penitani. I think it's made up. <laughs>